Blog Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time and that you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. It is a call-in show, and uh, our host in just a minute will give you the call-in numbers. But uh, first, let's get the show in the air. And REPA 26... You're clear to start engines. Hey. You're cleared for takeoff. Roger, we're on the roll, requesting a straight-out departure for REPA 25. That's approved, REPA 25.
Today is Captain Mike Scott. Mike, uh, helping out Don. Don, not feeling too good today, Mike, so how about handling his duties? Okay, uh, Captain Neal. Hello, folks. Welcome back to another exciting Reaper Radio Hour. Our stories range from the sounds of the aircraft you just heard, starting up, uh, as simply stated, from the mail wings uh, to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, Aka the Whisperliner, and by the way, that was the beautiful sounds of the right 3350 engines on the Lockheed Constellation that you heard. Probably another successful Eastern Airlines shuttle flight. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in on our smartphone or go to our radio pro- provider, which is www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you'll be given a message that the show has not begun. Better yet, why not do as many listeners do? Just call into the show, which the number is three, two, correction, 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do is share the comments and join in on our discussions by just touching the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer that you need to unmute your phone's microphone and then join in on the fun. We have added a new announcement to our Reaper Radio Hour broadcast each week. When it becomes when we become aware of the Eastern pilots and or their spouses who have gone west on their final flight, we will be, you will be notified about this. To do this honor, we have asked Captain Jim Holder. Uh, to do the honor, and Jim provides the memorial to all the Reaper rosters and the, the, on a needed basis and has done an outstanding service over the years. And we have uh, 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 Harry is going to fill in for him today. Uh, Harry? I'm going to fill in for Jim on some things, but Captain Neal, would you do the honors on this, please? Yes. Uh, Jim Holder sent out to all the Reaper membership uh, two captains that just passed away this past week, and his uh, his announcement was, we regret to inform you of the passing of retired Captain Lewis, better known to most Eastern pilots, Lou Bianchi. And uh, Captain Steve McDonnell reported that uh, Captain Bianchi died on September 25th, 2020, and he had reached the age of 87. And um, they did receive some further information about the arrangements. Lou Bianchi flew west on Saturday evening on the 26th after suffering a kidney failure a little over two years ago. He loved this community and had several happy years uh, in the area, thanks to the wonderful neighbors that became good friends. And uh, the memorial is going to be held at the EAA building uh, in Lake City, Florida, on October the 24th at uh, 3 p.m. And that was sent in by his wife, Widow Lisa Bianchi. And the next one was uh, from uh, Jim Holder announcing, we regret to advise the passing of retired Captain Kenneth Fluent Conrad, Jr., 
Ken passed away September 27, 2020, at the age of 77, after a long battle with heart disease. He's survived by his wife, Eastern Flight Attendant, Marcia Smith Conrad. Conrad. And the services will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, October the 2nd, that's tomorrow, at Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church, located at 1301 Central uh, Center Road in Venice, Florida. And uh, burial will be with military honors that will follow at the Venice Memorial Gardens. And uh, those are the two announcements that Jim Holder had sent to us, and uh, we uh, will bring the passing of our Eastern pilots during the REPA radio hour each week as we receive information about our fellow pilots that have flown west. Uh, since Don is not with us, uh, Mike, would you continue on? Yes, uh, thanks, Captain Neal, and that uh, we will make uh, available this time on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. So uh, we'll continue on uh, saying that it's a uh, they, it's a great honor that we can uh, honor these uh, pilots and uh, and spouses from flying west on the broadcast. And now, folks, sit back and enjoy some great aviation stories, as our producer said, stories written by the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and, of course, Eastern Airlines, stories printed in Repartee and other publications. Today we have a few short stories the producer found on the pages of Repartee. Harry, now maybe you could tell the listeners who might have missed our last week's show what went on. Sure, I'd be glad to, Captain Mike. Uh, in our last episode, we reached into the mailbag and pulled out a letter from Ann Teat, widow of Captain Larry Teat. In the letter, she recalled a few great memories about Larry and his time with Eastern. She recalled about the time Larry was first hired and was sent out immediately on a trip without having purchased the uniform, with the approval of Captain Eddie, of course. There should be plenty more Eastern stories where this came from, in the mailbag. We also learned who designed the Duck Hawk logo, logo that was used as a mark for the new company when it was sold by Pitcairn Aviation and renamed Eastern Air Transport. Lightning striking an aircraft is always a shocking story as we hear, heard the account of a DC-2 pilot being so struck. It was another great broadcast. What do we have to start today's show with that, that might be a little bit different from that mailbag? Well, we'll start off by reading the story told by Captain Hank Foley as he used the story of the ship captain Horatio Hornblower to tell his story. Mr. Producer, let's hear the story. This is a great story of remembering your colleagues that you work with with Eastern Airlines over the years, and it's written by Hank Foley, the editor of Repartee, for a few years. And the title of the story that he writes is something of value and it goes like this many of us have heard or read the famous Horatio Hornblower novels which tell of the career of a British naval officer during the old sailing ship days along with a superb action and adventure the author revealed the thoughts and character of the great sailor Hornblower was by nature self-critical 
even pessimistic, frequently feeling the darker side of life. Recently, a passage from one of the books came to mind. Captain Hornblower was faced with unsurmountable problems, and all courses of action seemed to lead to worsening results. His spirits were at a low ebb, and he was blaming himself for the difficulties. Then, in the midst of his black thoughts, his trusted lieutenant joined him, and the devils that surrounded him were chased away as if by holy water at the sight of his old staunch matter-of-fact friend. It's no secret that those of us who were in the bullseye of the big hurricane have had a miserable time ever since. Contractors cheated and did shoddy work, which often had to be redone. County inspectors turned hard-nosed to make up for previous laxity, disapproved too many jobs. Insurance companies let many of us down. Our airports have still not been rebuilt. Even our brethren in the aircraft repair shops robbed us blind. So when I went to reap a Christmas luncheon, I was not in the greatest of high spirits. But as I chatted with old friends, men with whom I've worked for most of a lifetime, and since again their basic decency and integrity, the devils that surrounded me were chased away as if by holy water and the kindly comments and inquiries soon smoothed the furrows that had creased my brow for a long time. Upon entering the dining room, I encountered George Freiberger. George was the first captain I flew with after being hired. Often during my later years as captain, when I found myself becoming irritated by some new co-pilot's lack of experience, I'd remember George's patience as I stumbled through my first flights. The only rub in meeting him was that I used to think of him as one of the old senior captains. (laughs) Now he looks younger than I do. Then I shook hands with Gene Brown, quiet and unassuming as ever. I wonder if he ever realized that those of us way down the seniority list considered him a par with the angel Gabriel. When I had just checked out in New York and was flying the New York, uh, the new LaGuardia Boston merry-go-round, Gene replaced the co-pilot on my trip in order to route qualify on the Boston route. I couldn't have been more overwhelmed if God himself had boarded the airplane. I respectfully stepped back to let him take the left seat, but he clapped me on the shoulder and said, Heck no, I'm your co-pilot. Just tell me what you want done. Not many living people can claim Gene as their co-pilot. And there was Warren Jameson. How the good Lord managed to cram so many fine qualities into one man, culture, flying skills, gentlemanly manners, kindness, and as my lady friend remarked, good looks, we'll never understand. And Lane Guthrie, whom we used to call the brain, He's another one who refuses to show any age. And while not quite as hallowed in age and seniority, I saw Jerry McCulley and Ray Bussey. Their demeanor always demanded respect. Ray is probably the coolest, most poised person I've ever met. With his sense of humor, I drive across the country any time to hear him tell a story. Just seeing these men... 
that I looked up to for so many years was a lift to my spirits. They lent dignity to the day. As my gaze wandered around the room, I spotted many of the fellows who were near my own seniority having similar career experiences. We can all remember hours and hours of conversations in hotel lobbies, coffee shops, airport coaches, and crew lounges. There were E.M. Taylor, Stillman Bell, Art Dunlop, who almost single-handedly got us out of the old double-breasted jackets. I can still hear his remark. Only Eastern pilots and Elliot Ness will wear double-breasted suits. And Ed Watson. Wouldn't it be something if we, we could know how many of our necks Ed saved during his years as safety chairman? And Gene Ramsey, who contributed so much to REPA. I wonder how many know that Gene is a songwriter. I had the pleasure of sitting with Gene Dangerfield, who is noted for having kept four engines running on a constellation when all the panel red lights were lit up like a Christmas tree and the pilots were trying, but not succeeding in keeping the airplane right side up. At nearby tables, I could see, like a vision from a vanished world, the faces of co-pilots that I had spent so many thousands of hours with in the cockpit and on layovers. I have no doubt that I learned as much from them as they ever learned from me, and not simply aviation matters. My roster of first and second officers includes lawyers, engineers, medical school graduates, economists, archaeologists, agriculturalists, successful businessmen, and one piano tuner, not to mention a flatora of amateur psychologists, philosophers, humorists, and one who was known as the Red Baron of the Bourdois. I could still, still, I could see Herb Smith and recall his stories so many years ago of the guy that fell into the vat of beer at Bush Gardens and drowned, but not before he climbed out and went to the bathroom twice, <laughs> and Joe Canopko. I never saw him that he wasn't cheerful. One time I corrected the spelling on something he had written, and he commented that it was a damn poor mind that couldn't think of at least two ways to spell a word. And Dan Saunders, no matter how hectic or desperate a trip might become, nothing could ever shake his rock of Gibraltar calmness. Once we encountered some brief turbulence that nearly dislocated my neck, when it was over, I said, oh, man, that was a rough one. He answered, what was? <laughs> and Ray Shirley, John Williams, Andy Mingo, Tom Lott, flying with them delayed the setting in the uh, crockety old foggy that I've long since become. Driving home after the luncheon, the day seemed much brighter, and my spirits felt as if Great jobs of misery had been cut loose from me. Great gobs of misery had been cut loose from me. In a sentimental mood, another passage from a book by Virginia Woolf came to my mind, slightly altered. When the day of judgment dawns and the great conquerors and statesmen come to receive their rewards and laurels, the Almighty will turn to Peter and say, not without a certain envy, when he sees us coming with our hat-in-the-ring pins, look, here come the eastern pilots. 
These need no reward. We have nothing more to give them here. They have loved their flying. Find them some airplanes and let them fly up and down the coast and give them my blessing. That guy could write a good story, Hank Foley. He and Bill Malone were my two favorite writers when I was the editor of, uh, of the Reaper magazine. And uh, that was a good good story about remembering your colleagues. And I'm yeah, sure, Mike, definitely good. You, yeah, I'm sure, Mike, you remember a lot of the guys that you worked with and flew with and, and uh, some you liked and some you didn't like. And, uh, yeah, well, this is true. It, it was a little different than, uh, on the corporate field, but, uh, you know, I yeah. actually started out as a, uh, as a chief of maintenance and then flight engineer and then worked my all the way, all the way through oh, all yeah. the seats. And yeah. then, uh, it, it, fortunately I, I used to work with a lot of guys that were, had a lot of confidence in me and were able to, uh, to see, see that I was uh, pretty good at what I was doing. So they gave me the opportunities to, uh, to move from seat to seat to seat, you know, and uh, yeah. we had a few guys, like you mentioned that uh, one, they were all good pilots. It just uh, some guys weren't, were, uh, would be good from the time he got up uh, after breakfast at the hotel in the morning until the trip was over at night after the, after you were through at the bar. But uh, <laughs> yeah. some guys would, uh, they, they would take on uh they would be like uh, they would turn into somebody different when they were on the yep. ground versus when they were in the air. Yeah, there you go. And Harry, yeah, so. working in crew scheduling, I'm sure you had those guys that chewed you out, and those guys would do anything to help you out. Well, you know, as in any field, you know, there's there's all types in there, and uh, for the most part, it was a bunch of bunch of great guys. Most of you always had a smile on your face, except when you got a call at you know, three in the morning or something like that. But uh, otherwise, it was a pretty pretty uh, pleasant bunch of, uh, of guys to work with. It's good to hear the stories about some of these guys. Uh, one I remember in particular, I don't know if you remember uh, Colonel uh, Ralph Davis. That's the guy I remember. Oh, I yeah. had a smile. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I forgot, was, uh, was he the guy? I don't think he was, but he would call everybody Colonel. Is that the same one you're talking about? I think so. I think so. Yeah, he, and he was yeah. always called Colonel. Yeah, and you know he made uh, he made general. He was the uh, if it's the same guy. I think it was. He was the uh, uh, pilot the the pilot for the Georgia governor. I forgot which governor That's it right. was. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. He was the uh, the, yeah. uh, the mm. corporate pilot or or government pilot for Jimmy Carter when he was governor. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're right. What a, I had forgotten all about him and and he would smile at you if you were on the steps coming up the stairs or going down the stairs and you'd meet halfway, yeah. he'd smile and say, "Hello, Colonel. How you doing?" Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> Remember him well. Thanks for reminding me of him, Harry. Now let's get on to our next story here. Yeah. Now, the next story was told by the master storyteller himself, Captain Bill Malone, another editor of Reaper T. He tells a story using the popular radio show One Man's Family that of East, of the Eastern Family. Mr. Producer, you have that sound clip. Yeah, and a lot of folks have never heard One Man's Family because it was on the radio many, many, many years ago as we listened to the serials 
that uh, were back in those days. And I looked up a uh, theme song for one man's family, and here's what I found. A story titled well, One Man's Family. I got, I got that one wrong. Here it is right here. Let me play this. This is One Man's Family. One Man's Family is dedicated to the mothers and fathers of the younger generation and to their bewildering offspring. Today transcribed, we present Chapter 12, Book 72, entitled, A Touch of Christmas Spirit. Well, that was the theme for One Man's Family. Now let's hear the story. A story titled One Man's Family by Captain Bill Malone in the 1994 issue of Repartee. In the 1930s, the magic of radio brought us the popular program One Man's Family. It was a continuing story of the adventures of the Barber family. Their experiences were so down to earth, one could easily identify with the various members of this large family. There was Father Barber, the patriarch, and Mother Barber, the matriarch, both with soft, kindly voices. They painted a picture in the mind of an elderly couple, a stabilizing influence in a fast-changing world. Then there was Paul, the older brother with a deep bass voice, properly mustached, a widower who had a passion for flying and a devotion to his adopted daughter, a pillar of strength and understanding. There was beautiful Claudia, petite and cute alongside her twin brother Clifford. Hazel was a courageous mother of twins. The many characters would carry you on a magical journey as you followed the problems and solutions that resulted from the close relationship each of the family members had with one another. You could hardly wait for the next episode. The Eastern family, the Eastern Airlines family, is in so many ways similar to the Barber family in that it was composed of such a close-knit group, knit group. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, World War I hero, ace fighter pilot, holder of the Congressional Medal of Honor, was Eastern's president and patriarch. He was fiercely protective of the fledgling company, which had its beginning during the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s. For his own company that built the Rickenbacker car had failed. It was far ahead of its time. Unfortunately, there was no demand for such a car with its advanced engineering. The captain ran a lean operation and was so successful that Eastern Airlines became the first airline to go off the airmail subsidy provided by the United States Post Office to enable the airlines to operate. Even though he was a national hero, he had the common touch. He could be seen sitting with the mechanics in the employees' cafeteria having lunch. After surviving that horrible crash at Morrow outside Atlanta, he came out to the Naval Reserve training base to offer encouragement to the Navy flight training students there. His words were, you young men are going to save this country and the people of the United States will be grateful to you for the rest of their lives. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was more than a patriarch of the Eastern Airlines family. He provided an inspiration that made his employees sense that they were a cut above the average. 
He made everyone feel that they were someone special. Although he was a great humanitarian, he was known to be quite severe at times. Once he called a staff meeting in New York and had his secretary call each station to tell the agents to be sure the station manager's baggage was left off of his flight. When everyone arrived after an all-night coach flight, unshaven and disheveled, the captain confronted them by saying, Now you see how important it is for a passenger's luggage to arrive when he does. Those with exceptional abilities were drawn to Captain Rickenbacker and Eastern Airlines. One was a man of considerable wealth who really did not have to work for a living. He became vice president of operations, and you might say he was a matriarch. He took his pilots under his wing, like Mother Barber. Mr. Shannon understood how pilots think, and he really treasured his association with them. As was Captain Rickenbacker, Mr. Shannon was known for his resourcefulness. He knew that the sheets Eastern Airlines provided for the beds in the early primitive crew rooms were too short, probably on purpose. Short sheets became a point of contention for the pilots flying trips on which they utilized the crew rooms and even others who just heard about it. When the pilot and company negotiators came together, Mr. Shannon asked, What about those short sheets? Do you think we need to do something about them? This set off a, such a furor that every, everything else to be negotiated was, was pushed into obscurity. Mr. Shannon folded his hands behind his head, leaned back in his chair, and enjoyed the show. Even Don Cole's pleading for more pay to buy his own sheets could not get the proceedings back on track. When one of Mr. Shannon's captains repeatedly was guilty of infractions, Mr. Shannon had him sign a letter of resignation, then put it in the desk drawer to be used in the event that additional violations occurred. More important, though, was that Mr. Shannon's forte lay in the fact that he understood how pilots think and he was proud of their ability to take charge and assume their responsibilities. Eastern Airlines became known as the Pilots Airline. Captain John Halliburton not only brought style and class to Eastern Airlines as a vice president of flight operations, he displayed great vision as the company acquired Lockheed Constellations and extended the flight segments to those of long, nonstop flights at higher altitudes requiring a pressurized cabin. He sent our most experienced pilots to the Lockheed factory for the purpose of learning everything possible about the big airplane. The knowledge they brought back was used to set up our training program, which was largely responsible for the great success Eastern Airlines enjoyed with the Lockheed Constellations. Johnny Ray was in charge of a maintenance department that used the most innovative methods. When the DC-3 was a pride of the great Silver Fleet, John Ray's mechanics invented tools that helped to make the Curtis Cyclone engine one that would always be remembered as the most dependable. Bish Simpson remembers the snake catcher, which was a snare to draw the valve back in place so the entire cylinders 
would not have to be removed. Mechanics earn shares of Eastern Airlines stocks and other prizes for the techniques they developed. New pilots were always given a tour of the maintenance facility so they could see the exceptional workmanship that typified that department. When Monty Chumley took us on an inspection, he spoke with admiration as he said, look at that well on the aluminum fuel tank. If the puddle is too hot, it will burn through the surface. If it's not hot enough, the well will not hold. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful? Why, it's a work of art. It looked like a row of dimes down the seam, each one perfectly placed. As the development of instrument flying made it possible to fly through inclement weather, there was a pressing need for better air-to-ground communications. F.E. Gray and Don McRae developed a radio network that led the industry. It utilized a number of stations, strategically placed in such a way that an aircraft transmission could be received by some stations, then relayed to the station it was addressed to. High frequency was made use with crystal control transceivers, which did not require manual tuning. Our radio operators used their ingenuity to hear the message with everyone listening. Someone would get it over the static, and which was often present. It was another example of a job well done. As newer, more modern equipment came on the scene, Jack Lambie used his considerable knowledge to establish the Eastern Airlines Training Department at the Hartley Building in Miami. He brought to Eastern his experience gained even before the first round-trip transoceanic flight to England and back that he and Dick Merrill made back in 1937. Both he and Rick Rivenbark, the director of training, were experienced line pilots. All of us had shared a marvelous experience through our associations with one another while being a part of Eastern Airlines. We have benefited from the tenacity of Captain Rickenbacker, the tolerance of John Halliburton, the anticipation of Mr. Shannon, the pleasure of Johnny Ray and his admiration for his maintenance department. Ours has been a life running over with good things, just as one man's family has remained in the memory from the old days of radio, so will the memory of Eastern Airlines family remain in our hearts, for we continue to be part of it, even today. Good story, by Bill. Boy, definitely. Boy, I tell you, some of us here, uh, we, we listen to those stories, and you, and we had our own good times when we were in there, but sometimes you hear stories like this. And sometimes I felt that I was born too late. I would have liked to have been in the middle of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was and and um it was it was really good that uh, I had the career that I had although it was cut short and um a lot of us didn't didn't like that at all and I I had about 7 more years that I could have flown but it just didn't happen and um can't cry over spilt milk and and believe me, well, working for Eastern was milk. It was milk and honey. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I mean, I, 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 people don't ask me what I did for did for a living. I just tell them nothing. That's just <laughs> yeah. because all of my, all the years I worked in maintenance and all the years that I flew, and I flew till I was seventy over seventy five. Oh my so God! I could I had to keep pinching myself all the time. You know, <laughs> said, they really paying me to do this. Yeah. I said, I wow. mean, it's just it's like that poem of uh, we flew and it has the whole yeah, story about it. yeah <laughs> yeah that's right yeah, uh, yeah it's great, a great, great story and, and I'm so happy that I've got uh, <clears throat> so many of these stories that we can pass on I hope uh, folks just don't get hard, tired of hearing them but um, try to keep them I don't uh, see how they could you know they're, they're all you, interesting yeah and you know I discovered the mailbag and and uh, Jim Holder, of course, was uh, editor after me, and he held the, the the magazine together for 15 years. And and during my time, I had it about five years. And and receiving all the letters that we received, we had at least about uh, five or six pages, maybe even more, of what we call ink, so that we could yeah. fill those pages with stories of uh, letters sent to us. And um, it was fantastic. It really was great stuff. Well, you guys and, all and did Neil, a great just job. To remind our, our listeners, uh, all of those or a lot of those letters are, are uh, available on the Repartee site. Just yeah. go into the uh, look at the different editions uh, uh, of the magazine. Yeah, they are. They sure are. Thank goodness. And uh, <clears throat> that website's easy to remember, repaonline.com. I, I put that together back in 19, well, let's see, it was 99 or 2000. And um, I just felt like the magazine should keep up with the time. And and uh, I got that uh, that domain address, repaonline.com, and we started. And, of course, back then, not many of the pilots knew how to even get into the computer or turn it on. So uh, we we had to inform them in the magazines about how to do that, and um, it's uh, it's there. And Jerry Frost has managed to put the entire collection of repartee uh, on the internet, and you can go yeah. in and turn the pages, and and it's fun to do that. And so I I I do that different years, uh, and I think we started in '72. And uh, go through the years and pick out the stories that you want to, you find that, that, you know, that are interesting. And yeah. uh, it's fun. Great well, our next one, who's yeah. going to who's gonna announce our next one here and what it's called? Well, let's see. Uh, we, we reached into the mailbag of Reaper T Magazine and found these, all these great letters uh, sent to the editor from the retired pilots, Eastern pilots. And uh, Mr. Producer, <laughs> would you open up a few of these new letters from the past? Or old okay. letters from the past. <laughs> All right, let's let's try that. We've got about two or three of them. They're not too long. Let's see what we got here. This is from the 1994 issue. Thank you. We've talked about this on a previous radio show, but I found this in the 1995 issue of Repartee, and it's titled Honolulu 1933. How many of us have wished we could sneak our wives into the cockpit of a First, for a first-hand view of how we handled the plane, how we took off and landed, how many of us did it without the knowledge of the company. 
Perhaps Jim Furlow was one of the first as he took his wife, Flory, along in the Keystone Bomber over beautiful Hawaii, and with her pregnant, too. He didn't have to do it secretly, though. The Air Corps allowed it in 1933. Jim Furlow joined the Army Air Corps in 1931. He became an aviation cadet and received his training at Randolph and Kelly Fields in San Antonio. He received his wings in 1932 and was assigned to France Field in Panama. From there, he was sent to Honolulu, where he and Flory made their flight in the Keystone Bomber off the coast of the island of Oahu. Jim says the Keystone Bomber was sensitive on the controls, flying at about 60 miles per hour and landing at about 40 miles per hour. He later returned to the States and was assigned to Langley Field in Virginia. He came to Eastern Airlines in 1940. Now we're going to read some letters sent in to the mailbag, as it was popular titled. And uh, Bill Malone was the editor in the 1995 issue of Repartee and received some of these letters this first letter I'm reading is from George Wills, who lived in Miami, Florida. And he writes, It was a quiet, almost boring Sunday afternoon in the LaGuardia dispatch office. Everything was routine and on schedule. Then the hotline phone rang for the flight superintendent, Neil McKinney. Washington operations was on the other end with a problem. Captain Rickenbacker was in Washington and wanted a ride to LaGuardia. The flight was full, so Captain Captain Eddie had said that he would ride the jump seat. Somewhere in the back of the agent's mind, he recalled that the jump seat, which was in the cockpit, of course, was for flight crews and licensed airmen. The agent wanted to know if Captain Rickenbacker was authorized to occupy it. McKinney, in his laconic voice, said, It's his own airline. He can haul coal in it if he wants to. A gruff voice on the other end said, Thanks, Mac. It was Rickenbacker himself listening in. Now, in that same letter that he wrote in the mailbag, he goes on to say, Here is one for our our nostalgia. Shortly after the Second War, I was a dispatcher at LaGuardia. It was a bitter cold morning, and the smoke layer over the New York area was even thicker than usual. LaGuardia was below minimums, and Newark was barely above. A Navion was trying to land at Newark, but had missed several approaches and was short on fuel. His situation was critical. Paul Saltanus, in an eastern DC-3, was holding in the LaGuardia stack, which is a holding pattern. He became aware of the problem and offered his help. He pulled out the stack, he pulled out of the stack, and proceeded to Newark on top of the smoke layer. He had no trouble rendezvousing with the Navion. Paul instructed the Navion pilot to take a position on his wing and stay close. Paul then started an ILS approach with the Navion, eyeball to eyeball with him. When they reached minimum altitude, Paul pulled up and to one side. The Navion landed safely. Paul then resumed his position in the LaGuardia holding stack. He was able to land at LaGuardia a short time later. 
He came through the dispatch office after his arrival, but didn't say a word about what he had done. The only way we heard was when Airways called to thank Paul for his help. My best wishes to everyone. George Wills. Now, here's a letter that uh, caught my attention because it was from John Miller of Poughkeepsie, New York. John, as you recall, was the first uh, gyrocopter pilot for Eastern Airlines, flying the gyrocopters off the rooftops of buildings for the post office in Eastern Airlines. He writes this, and it's again in the 1995 issue of Rep. RT. My 88th birthday was December 15th. I'm still in tip-top and vigorous health and still vigorously flying in my Bonanza. A September trip in the Bonanza was to California to visit my brother, three of my nine grandchildren, and three of my six great-grandchildren. On the way, I stopped at Salt Lake City to visit an old friend who was chief engineer of Columbia Aircraft Corporation at Valley Stream, Long Island. During the war, I was his chief test pilot at the same time that I was flying DC-3s on Eastern Airlines. I stopped at Reno, Nevada for four days to attend the annual convention of the American Bonanza Society. We now have more than 10,000 members, and there were 500 bonanzas and barons at the fly-in. I did not stay to see the big Reno Air Race because I disapprove of close-course air racing. At Palomar Palomar Airport in Carlsbad, I visited the Martin shop where an experimental, experimental Navy amphibian I tested at Columbia in 1944 and 45. The XJL-1 was being restored, a big and expensive job. We built only two of that type by the time the war ended. The other one was in the Pima Air Museum at Tucson, it had a right R2600 engine of about 1,800 horsepower and was an excellent airplane both in air and water. I tested 330 of the Grumman J2F6s, duck amphibians, from 212 to 5 hours each, also doing as much flying on that job as on Eastern. There are ducks in the San Diego Air Space Museum and the EAA Museum. The flights, the flights home from California, were 11,000 feet with a 30-knot tailwind. In November, I flew the Bonanza nonstop in eight hours and six minutes from Poughkeepsie to Kissimmee, Florida, to attend the AOPA convention. At the convention, the United Flying Octogenarians re-elected me president for the sixth year in a row. We now have more than 140 UFO members who have flown after age 80. Mm -hmm. From there, I hopped over to Sarasota to visit a retired TWA captain who owns a World War I J-1 standard that I rebuilt from a wreck in 1927 and sold in 1929, teaching the purchaser to fly in it. He has restored it with its same Hispano engine, and I was happy to see it again. Then I flew on to Pensacola to visit the Naval Aviation Museum, especially to see the Navy NC-4 flying boat 
that crossed the Atlantic in 1919, then on to Morristown, Tennessee, to visit a lady member of UFO who has been instructing students since 1947 and now has the world record for flying over 50,000 hours. She is still instructing flying and managing the airport there at age 84. Then on to home. The two trips totaled, totaled 65 hours and 12 minutes. Repartee is certainly wonderful. Sad to say, there aren't many EAL pilots still surviving who flew with me or even knew me. But to those who are surviving, and all others too, greetings and best wishes for the year 1994. Johnny Miller. Johnny Miller now, was something, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, that visit to Marstown, uh, my wife's family lives there just outside of Marstown, and, and I had the pleasure of meeting Evelyn Johnson, and uh, Evelyn and I um, gave uh, Eagle Scouts their merit badges in aviation, and she helped me. And at that time, she was in her 90s, and I had at that time my steerman, uh, that uh, I flew that my partner and I crashed and was killed in. But um, what a wonderful woman she was. And Johnny, I think that was her, uh, his best friend. I think he flew to see her when he was in his late 90s. And shortly after that, at about 100 years old, Evelyn had an accident. And uh, uh, my family would keep me posted on Evelyn uh, on the Internet. And... Uh, she had uh, hurt her arm or either broke her leg or something like that. And uh, so it, it grounded her. But she had, at that time, she was, she had been on the Johnny Carson show and lots of uh, television interviews and then things like that. And she wrote a book. Of course, I've got that in my library and she signed it. And uh, what a remarkable lady she was and a remarkable guy, uh, uh, Johnny Miller was, and he sent me a story yeah. later on that I'll probably find and read uh, for one of the issues that I edited. It was when he took his trip out in his Bonanza and overshot the runway because he uh, had a hypoxia at a high altitude, and and uh, he, he, he knew he had to put the airplane down, and he ran off the end of the runway, and he was in his 90s at the time this flight happened. So I'm going to find that letter. I forgot which one it was in, but yeah. uh, an interesting story. Ah, these are all great well, you, stories. You had mentioned about uh, the Sultanus with the uh, lead guiding in the, yeah. uh, the Navion. Yeah. Well, uh, Sultanus used to live uh, in one of the houses that we had when I lived in Great Neck when my dad was early with Eastern, and he got after my dad, and he lived right across the street in one house over. Ah. And unfortunately, you know, he was killed in the DC-3. Uh, no, I did not know Back that. in 19, 1948, he was hired in 42 or 41, and I remember his daughters and whatnot, and uh, they had a big funeral, you know, and I remember all the pilots showing up at the house there with all their uniforms and stuff on it because they were right across the street. But he was wow. uh, involved in that DC-3 down there in Maryland <laughs> and uh I guess what happened was he was doing a non-precision approach, and he uh, he ducked under a little bit, and he caught the uh, caught the.
tips in the trees, and it, of course it was from there on. It was a, a pretty disastrous situation. So I don't remember yeah. the complete particulars. I have the accident report somewhere, but I was just bringing wow. that off the top of my head. Well, it's interesting. I just thought I'd throw that in. Well, you know, it's it's good that we have all of these stories that uh, we can use as a source to bring and broadcast. And uh, I'm having fun doing them, uh, doing a, two or three of them, and then we talk about them. So um, hopefully we can keep this going for a while. And... Um, we don't have all of our crew here, but we have the ones that count, right, Harry? <laughs> well, uh, Captain Neil, I guess we will we'll, we'll let that go, as uh, you say. <laughs> and uh, you know, we've got more than forty years of repartee magazines, so that yeah. means we have a lot of many stories from the retired pilots that will be enjoying on the coming Repo Radio Hour Thursday broadcast. I bet they never thought their letters would make such interesting stories, and they really are interesting stories. Just snapshots of of uh, people's lives sometimes. Yeah. And Neil, it, it must have been fun as an editor of this magazine just to read them as they came to you. Yeah, they did. They really did, and uh, they came without pictures, just uh, just a letter. When the, and the letters were usually received when the dues were paid. Uh, in, during the year, and they came in at different times because people paid their dues different times, and so it was always good to pull out, along with a check, of course, a letter, and uh, we type it up and put it in the magazine, and and there it was, and and uh, even the addresses were were shown, and um, we occasionally got uh, letters from widows remembering like the one that Ann had written that we told in this last uh, broadcast that we had. So we'll yeah. keep doing well, this as long as, as long as you guys uh, will stay with us and we can have some fun doing it. That's what it's all about. And I know my mom had sent in a couple of short letters, for, you know, after my dad had passed away over the years, uh, I can't remember which issues they were in or anything, but. Uh, you give me the year and I'll look them up and see if I can find uh, them. I try and research it myself before I get you involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> that's about all we have time for the show. You know, I put some things in there that we could chat about, but, of course, that's what we've been doing, chatting. But I was yeah. particularly uh, intrigued by that new General Electric engine that has just been certified at 134,000 pounds of thrust. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Harry, that's why they only have two engines on these airplanes now that you talked about <laughs> earlier. <laughs> yeah. They've got to yeah. go back to single engine soon. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> 134,000 yeah. pounds of thrust. And uh, I think they're going to use it rated at about 124,000 or something like that. But um, I guess that extra 10,000 pounds of thrust is what they used to call, uh, what, military power? Or uh, what was that? Was, yeah. I what we used to call it max takeoff power, anyhow. <laughs> In the old but, days, Mito power. <laughs> Mito, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, okay. Well, how about seeing if you can finish up the rest of it and we'll take the program out of here? 
Uh, let's see here. We were we, we, you had a little deal about the Northern Lights there. I don't know if anybody wanted oh, yeah. to get involved Did with that. Oh yeah. Did you guys read about that or see them? Well, I I've, many times because we were always up in those real north uh, longitudes, you know, for going up into Thule and coming across uh, from oh yeah from uh, yeah. from Keflavik up into Frobisher Bay and the Northeast Territories and all that stuff, doing a great circle yeah. route. So we saw great. Great auroras of that, uh, those northern lights all the times. I mean, it's some of them were just kind of average, but other ones were just a Brilliant. sight to behold. They you really know, I used are. To fly that, so. Yeah, I used to fly the night trip out from Omaha to Seattle, of course, originating in Atlanta. And uh, on clear nights, we would see those northern lights, and they were just absolutely bright as it, they could be. And yep. folks on the right-hand side of the airplane got a beautiful view. And actually, the dancing of the Northern Lights, and that's what they do. They dance. Yeah, absolutely. But what uh, what I saw and what I thought about, because they came down south, and uh, the Northern Lights were now Southern Lights, because Peggy and I, a few years back when we were living in Pensacola, back in uh, 1995 and 96, somewhere around there, <clears throat> uh, we were living there, and uh, we were out walking, and it had been announced in the newspaper, the Pensacola newspaper, that uh, if if it were bright enough, uh, dark enough, and without clouds, that we would be able to see the northern lights. And so Peggy and I walked in the neighborhood. We walked. We were living on a golf course, and we were li- we were walking down the street, and sure enough, lo and behold, there they were, off on the horizon. The Northern yep. Lights, but um, I guess it maybe were, you know, I don't know what causes them to shift like that uh, to such southern latitudes. But it was it was quite a quite interesting. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and then finally we were talking about the seven thirty seven Max test flight with the uh, head of the FAA doing the test flight, and I think that was done yesterday. The Max yes, test I flight. saw something on that. Yeah, I didn't read it, but I saw something on that that somebody sent me. And the last thing <clears throat> I had here for chatting was that Boeing has announced that they're going to move the 787 Dreamliner production to Charleston, South Carolina. And about mm-hmm. three years ago, REPA had their convention in South Carolina, and Dorothy and Don came, and I was there, and uh, a couple of friends of mine, and we took the tour of that 787 Dreamline, Dreamliner plant that uh, was out there in the old Chance Vault uh, field. I think they used it earlier. Chance Vault built some airplanes there, and Boeing bought it, and they put it out there, and we had the chief test engineer, or test pilot, rather, that gave us our tour through the uh uh, the the plant, and they had yeah. six seven seven eighty sevens and one seven 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 X was in the uh, in that hangar. Yeah, and it was just absolutely amazing, just amazing. So now all of the production will be done in South Carolina. So if I feel like it, and and uh, we feel like taking a trip, I'd sure like to go up there and revisit. Uh, yeah, that I'd like beautiful. to do it myself one of these days. Yeah, but let's just hope Boeing stays in business. That's the main thing. Yeah, exactly. Keep our fingers crossed. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's put us out of here. Well, Don, let's see. Probably... Before before we before we sign off, uh, our host and webmaster is out uh, taking care of her husband Don. So uh, he she usually has a few words for us there. That uh, are you going to fill us in on that, uh, Neil? No, we're going to Dorothy's part that. there. You're going to you're going to continue on reading. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trips through the pages of Reaper T, as printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, visit us at www.ealradioshow.com, and you will find many other great Eastern stories and memories. It's time to say goodbye for tonight, for this afternoon, so Eastern so long, and to our Eastern families that are listening in and others, uh, we love you, Eastern, and we're going to play some Silver Wings. We love you, Eastern. Thanks, Harry, and thanks, Mike. Okay, Captain Neil. Yeah. Good show. Thank you a lot. It is somewhere in They're taking you away. Don't leave me, I cry Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind They're taking you away, leaving me lonely. Silver wings, slowly fading out of sight. Okay, Mike. Thanks a lot. We'll see you Monday night. Okay, Captain Neil. See you at the gate. Okay.